and welcome to Contourcast. My name is Kat Boyd and I'm joined with my lovely co-host David Jameson. How's it going? I'm a wee bit, uh, I've, I've obviously been hit by the sun. I didn't really notice that until I'm looking at this. I'm coming across a wee bit, uh, Andrew Neil of GB News. Seen those pictures of him where he's totally orange. Uh, no, I haven't. Like, I haven't seen them. Um, but I have followed some of the GB News frenzy on social media. Those kind of like Twitter accounts where they're documenting all the fuck ups, they're not over exaggerating it or cherry picking it. Like I've watched it a couple of times for sort of half an hour ago. And honestly, it's every couple of minutes. Uh, every couple of minutes, some music starts randomly playing. People are getting the lines all wrong, introducing wrong segments. It's, it's, quite, it's quite astonishing how, how mad it is. I like when that happens to like to the right. Yeah. I find it like, I mean, it's enjoyable because usually that's like our kind of fuck up. Yeah, I, 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 it sets you to thinking about a few um, sort of far left uh, party political broadcasts over the years. You know what I mean? Yes. One of which uh, is really famous. Should we tell people to check it out? Yeah. If you've not seen this, I can't even remember what name this what name this outfit eventually ended up with, but it was Tommy Sheridan and it must have been for the elections. God, what election would it have been? The Scottish elections, it might have been 2011. Right? Surely it's further back than that. Mm, I think it might be 2011. I also think it's Tusk. Yeah, I think I think it ended up being called something like Tusk Solidarity or Tusk yeah, Tom that's Sheridan. Right, that's or... right. I'm checking it out on YouTube right now. Like, honestly, David and I are not doing this uh, broadcast any type of justice. I found it, right? It's called Scottish Tusk PPB, right? Mm -hmm. It has 3.2k views. Um, Half of those are me. (laughs) At least half of those are you. Um, We recommend that listeners check it out for some absolutely glorious left-wing aesthetics scottish left-wing aesthetics yeah yeah it's very scottish um so yeah i mean usually it's uh, it's the left doing that um but no it, G, gb news is is running at a close uh, close second and another thing that's hilarious about it is the whole thing is we are not the metropolitan bubble they've missed misspelled every town they've gone to uh we've had newscastle with an s newscastle mm-hmm. We've had Starling rather than Starling, Starling with an E, <laughs> Starling in Scotland. Um, so yeah, it's it's going uh, it's going very well. Um, yeah. So I didn't see any of it, but basically, you're telling everyone that today you look a bit Andrew Neil. Yes. Yes. Um, which you know, what is it? Was Orwell who said something like, "By the age of fifty, you have the face you deserve." Uh, well, Andrew Neil. Has the face he deserves, um, and I'll, you know, probably end up with quite a similar kind of bag, <laughs> swollen, uh, swollen scrotum uh, um, kind of look going on. It's a look that's called tanned bag puss. Tanned bag puss, yeah. yeah. It's a tanned um, bag puss of a look, sort of like soft and saggy, but still leathery. Yeah, I like I like battered fart, you know, like deep fried fart is uh <laughs> is the kind of look he's got going on at the moment i really don't know what to make of that i don't know how i feel about that um so anyway let's talk news. about politics and <laughs> um, so first on our agenda today is uh, the labor party that's all it says the labor party um who are going through some kind of mm, crisis as usual, um, uh, this is about the the outcome of the vote in Chesham and Amersham by election. Yeah, so the Liberal Democrats uh, have scored a kind of freak victory. Um, looks like there was a degree of tactical voting going on. The Labour vote is six hundred and something, which, according to a couple of people, is roughly the member the party membership in the area. So that is, I mean, speaking of the far left, that's a famous kind of, that's a far left style vote. It's just members and their family. Um, Um, Yeah, so it's also, it's 
obviously never really been like a popular seat for the Labour Party. No. But this vote is, I mean, it is shocking. And so I think it's about, I think 622 votes that they got represents like 1.6 of the, the actual, the total votes. Because I wanted to check out, well, it is obviously like a terrible number, but like just how bad is it compared to the last election? How bad is it compared to 2019? And 2019 was bad. And 2019 was bad, yeah. Um, so, it, I mean, it's a huge drop. It is a massive drop compared to like the previous the previous election. Mm-hmm. Um, John Curtis says that it's Labour's worst ever by election result. I don't know what he means by that in terms of is it the lowest percentage of the vote they've ever had when they've run in a by-election or if he just means it's like the worst shock in terms of the scale of the collapse of the vote but that is a that is a measure of it and there are but there are people drawing all kinds of very funny conclusions from this one is this shows that Labour needs to get serious about a, a progressive alliance and all this kind of stuff right and this is some Labour people saying this I could actually imagine that the logic, not the not the not the real project of a so-called progressive alliance, but that as a phenomenon is going to be is could be one of the ways in which Labour dies, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the, the silver linings we were being told in the local elections that were going on at the same time as the Scottish elections was that Labour had picked up representation in places like Worthing, right? Mm-hmm kind of southeast middle class areas um and i remember thinking like no that's just another sign of decline right that's just another sign that your fund the class character of your vote is becoming increasingly middle class and liberal and that's just part of the breaking of the traditional coalition of laborism which is kind of urban intelligentsia plus traditional sort of working class northern midlands etc um and Wales and Scotland, uh, yeah, traditionally. Um, so that's just further evidence of the decline. This result is more evidence of that dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. It's just it, like the, the Tories probably are going to have to lose some of their home counties' votes. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, because their project is is not really directed there anymore. Like, yeah. ultimately, we're seeing like Johnson try and build like a powerful base. Um, in the north and amongst the working class like I think that that's actually what we are what we're facing it Um, probably won't be this extreme but it is a similar dynamic in some ways to the famous shift that took place between the Democrats and the Republicans mm. where the Republicans used to be broadly the kind of like left wing I mean they were the anti-slavery party of course and then in the mid-20th century they, they sort of swapped places um, the, the Democrats used to be a very socially conservative party, particularly in the South. Like, there is a shift underway here, but anyone who thinks, anyone on the left who thinks the Lib Dems winning that seat it points to something useful for the left is kidding themselves, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, but all- like, obviously an aggressive, like, Tory seat, do you know what I mean? Um, the percentage votes, like, average out, the percentage share of Labour's vote in the last few elections, like it's kind of averaging out at about 12%. So they've got, I mean, this, there's clearly tactical voting, but that would be like probably the biggest success ever for tactical voting if that's Mm. what happened. Um, Yeah, and if if that becomes a real dynamic, it will be at Labour's expense. What it means is not only have Labour lost the attachment of historic working class areas. It also means that any gains they might pick up from middle class Liberals are going to be split by the Liberal Democrats and the Greens. That's what a progressive alliance means. So why people think that's a good idea for Labour. But anyway, it's it's all further evidence. um, And I suspect Batley and Spen will be more evidence of the collapse of, of Labour's coalition and let's not forget we've seen this before in british politics the liberal party disappeared um the once hegemonic party of what you might then have described the left kind of i mean it's a much more kind of ruling class party but um but then what's labor today you know i mean it's not a working class party um so the british electoral system has a way of dispatching parties that represent 
dead projects. Yeah. The, the Liberals represented a dead project by the time of their demise. They were naturally replaced by a party of Labour after the introduction of the franchise and, and so on. Um, and the Labour Party are a denatured post-working class party who are going to disappear because they don't represent a viable class project. I mean, I, it's only really in the last couple of years that I've become a believer in the, in the death of Labour Britain kind of hypothesis. And it could be a long drawn out process that looks kind of like the recent by-elections. It's not just that Labour are losing. I mean, they, they scraped London with Sadiq Khan. I mean, they're even under pressure. There's not, they don't have a solid dependable demographic. You know, they're losing uh, traditional Muslim voters in places like Batley and Spen and Bradford and stuff like that. Um, apparently there's some really interesting stuff coming out of Batley, like Muslim voters are really angry because they feel that they've basically been persecuted by the Labour Party. Like people forget that, like a lot of the ire during the anti-Semitism witch hunt was projected towards the Muslim community. They feel they've been abandoned and they have. So <laughs> like shedding votes all over the place and it's it's looking pretty chronic. I mean, I mean, for me, where this all started going wrong for Labour was the fudge around Brexit, like the fact that they tried to fudge Brexit, the fact that the party was split on this people's vote, second, like vote again, referendum, you know, to decide the terms, all of that sort of stuff. Like that is a, that has been a huge tactical mistake for Labour. And I think that it's haunting them. And I think that Keir Starmer is like very, you know, closely associated with remain and he also let's be honest like looks like a remain politician like he looks establishment and um, so the rejection of labor in places like Hartlepool in the north um you know I think goes back to Brexit I think in this um constituency you're seeing the other side of the fudge coin where it was like a little bit of Brexit like we don't want to be the party of Brexit and what that's done is like that kind of middle ground has then like, you know, ceded the, the ground to other parties. Um, you know, you can see that by the, the jump in like the Green Vote, for example, who were obviously part of that, like, you know, People's Vote Coalition and a Brexit Remainer sort of thing. So that would, I think that there's definitely um, part of that that's going on as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a it's a longer development. Like, it's this is part of what's going on with social democratic parties all over Europe. But the Brexit thing was a huge turning point, like huge. And that, like, honestly, we're going to be talking about it in ten years as like a major moment in the breaking of the old political format. It's astonishing when you think how deftly the Conservatives used that, right? It instantly created a terrible situation for the Tory party. The Tory party in 2016, really like the, the leadership, the MPs, etc., totally in favour of Remain. Um, Brexit was a, it was a nightmare for them. They knew it would split them from their base, um, especially once they started trying to resist it or, or hem Brexit in. They went from a situation of civil war that was only ended, of course, by Boris Johnson literally purging the organisation, right? They went from that situation to a position of total political hegemony overnight by adopting the kind of get Brexit done slogan. And Boris Johnson didn't want Brexit. Like, these people are just pragmatic. They're smart. They understand that sometimes history's moving too strongly in a certain situation for you to stand in the middle of the flow. So you have to ride it and control it which is what the Tories are trying to do. They, they rode the Brexit thing so that they could control it. And they've simultaneously managed to take the sting out of Brexit as a disrupting force in British politics and just crush the opposition. Um, and like Boris Johnson has this huge honeymoon he has at the moment, partly because he was seen as like the one politician who listened, which is an enormously powerful thing in yeah. our prevailing political climate to be the one politician who's different. And that should have been Corbyn's mantle, but it was sacrificed. Um, For so-called electability. 
Yeah, for electability, which yeah. is always the huge mistake. It's, it's always the thing of reacting rather than leading. What Boris Johnson did was lead, right? He yeah. said, no, I'm going to take control of this situation and I'm going to um, make it work from my ends. And you can do that. And that's a perspective that has completely disappeared. This really weird thing always went on with Labour where it was like, Labour activists just turned, and commentators just turned into people with calculators, sort of like, well, if we take a soft, you know, a, a soft Brexit position, maybe we can get constituencies X, Y, Z, but that is not how the world works. Like, you can actually change the argument by intervening into it. Yeah. Um, but that kind of self-belief has just sort of, uh, has disappeared. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens in Batley and Spen. Um, and, you know, like, we get and people saying... Uh, well-informed as always. It's a couple of weeks or something. <laughs> a couple of weeks or something. Oh, so well-informed. Um, but look, see when that happens, right? You get all these people as well saying, then Starmer will have to go. And then what? Yeah, like, what? The, exactly. the real party's bust. Like, <laughs> and then nothing. Like, there's no one to replace him. Uh, and no, no one... Even a brilliant, radical, charismatic figure, I honestly don't think could turn the tide. But I also, like, I think that the problem will be, who fucking wants it? Yeah. Like, who wants that kind of, like, because this is the thing, I think it is an irreversible, like, shift. It certainly seems that way. And it's, like, just going in one direction and nobody can really turn it around so the question is like who wants to be head of a sinking ship yeah like unless yeah. you can like absolutely gut the plp <laughs> which is as corbin's project is showing is just not going to happen um, also you know the, the brand is poisonous like it, the best you could do is what corbin did in 2017 right now, there were still some morbid symptoms around 2017, we sometimes forget, but he was able to obviously stabilise the project and he had committed constituencies who, who loved him, like young people, right? Starmer doesn't have that. Like, the best you could do is, is, is reach out to this or that constituency, but the old block looks just shattered beyond repair. Yeah. And then there's also factor in um the unite election mm. and the reason i don't know if listeners will have picked up on this but there's a general secretary election taking place in unite the union which is obviously britain's biggest union and the former general secretary len mccluskey has is stepping down um his term is well like over um and he was obviously a vocal supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. You know, Unite continued to back Corbyn. They continued to press that type of agenda. They supported Corbyn. They, like, put money into it. Um, Len McCluskey was obviously in the news a lot about it. Um, you know, really one of Corbyn's major backers. I don't think Corbyn would have survived if it hadn't been for um, Unite and some other unions, you know, really, like, arguing the toss, like, within the structures and putting, like, their full might um, into to supporting uh, Corbyn and McDonald, so Len is stepping down. So obviously that has major implications for the Labour Party and um, where the Labour Party is going. Um, the candidates so far in Unite are Steve Turner, um, who's you know seen as the kind of the continuity with Len McCluskey candidate. Um, up until today, Howard Beckett was standing, who's another Unite officer, and um, he's now withdrawn from the campaign and backed Steve Turner. Then the third candidate on the left that's running is um, Sharon Graham, um, who's not vocally left, but she is one of the most effective industrial operators I've ever encountered. Um, she is the mastermind behind all Unite's Leverage campaigns. Um, you know, things like uh, the blacklisting campaign around Crossrail and um, with Scabby the Ran, all that stuff. Um, but she's also like, she she's the one behind Unite's organising department, which is just like a powerhouse of extending union membership and bargaining cover and all those sorts of things. So I think that, you know, I think she's in with a really good shout. 
Um, and then there's the candidate, there's one candidate on the right, and that's a uh, coin, your coin. And yeah, I assume that out of those, can I mean, I just, how is this going to play out in terms of Labour? Because if coin wins, because there's, you know, this split on the left, um, then it's going to have pretty drastic consequences for anyone in the left who wants to get involved in the Labour leadership to not have the same type of backing um, that, that Corbyn did from the biggest union. I mean, you have to remember that like there's a political fund and money from that trade union goes into the Labour Party. Um, you know, it, it's a... Uh, it's part of the like this historic movement um but what i'm interested in is like is this an is this another point of fissure like is this going to be another crack where there is like if a left candidate is elected like sharon whose whole policy platform is like our union leaders need to stop focusing on westminster and start focusing on the workplace like that's her whole message if it's someone like that does that you know refocus the Unite project kind of away from the Labour Party? Is that going to be another break at some point? Um, because there's always been questions about the union's affiliations to the Labour Party. And if they're no longer the voice, elected voice of the working class, like even more so than now than ever, then what is that relationship going to be like in the future for the trade unions? Yeah, I mean, I... Um... I obviously don't know much about the inner life of uh, of Unite. It did strike me as like crazy that there were three left candidates and one right candidate is obviously a recipe for disaster and Beckett's now dropped out. But also there's some weird stuff going on in terms of factional tensions on the left as well. Tana, I take it, is like, is he like the natural successor to Len McCluskey? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he was the official Unite Left candidate. Yeah. Uh, so you've got you've got kind of three tendencies developing there. Like one is Steve Turner's kind of approach of, uh, well, presumably you know he'll want political influence in the Labour Party and so on. Presumably not in the same way Len McCluskey sought it because he had an ally leading the Labour Party. Um, and then Beckett kind of seemed to represent like a certain element of like former Corbynites who wanted to launch an all-out assault on uh, on um, uh, Starmer using the union as, as a kind of a launch pad to do that. So, I mean, I'm sure he'd represented good stuff as well, but there was also represented the kind of like frustrated fixation of people on the left about, about Keir Starmer that's possibly not very healthy and then you have an argument developing which like is on the plus side is is like yeah this is what unions are ultimately for right I, I can see the attraction of it on the other hand you know there's always a danger of sort of of anti-politics I don't know her well enough to know if she would go in that direction but you could be right as well in the sense that um it represents or rather it kind of like predicts a tension between trade unions and Labour reimagining, especially if Labour end up just shedding seats and they look less and less like a viable alternative government. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a complex picture, but I mean, it, is it not the case, the case that Coin ran it really close against Len in the last yeah. election? Yeah, see, that, and that's a problem. So... The way I see it is that there's there is a discontent within Unite about the um the focus on labor, right? So Coin's whole agenda when he's been running is that the union needs to focus on its members rather than controlling labor. Um, you know, and he's, you know, looking to, you know, launch an investigation into the fact Unite built this conference center in Birmingham. So he, so what he's doing there you, I, I think is quite clear is a kind of like you know an anti-Len McCluskey message yeah and I think that that will appeal to a certain base um, and he is a right winger as well so he's on the right of the union so 
yeah, I, I, he's talking about like, you know. Well, I mean, he, he's, talk, he's talking about like, you know, he's going for this kind of like anti-establishment vibe, right? And mm -hmm. the problem is, is that like Steve Turner, like whatever people think of him is seen very much in the like, the the tradition of Lane McCluskey. Right, like, okay. that's, that, that's the problem. And what will happen, and this is what I don't under this is what I don't agree with that's happening on social media is this like pressure on Sharon Graham to step down, which assumes that Sharon Graham's voters will transfer to Turner. And my whole point on this is I don't think they will. There right. will be some, right? Because you know, Sharon's seen as being on the left, and um, she is on the left. So like the left would just then vote for Turner, but Sharon Graham has like a much wider and deeper reach through like all the organizing and leverage work. And she'll probably run a fantastic campaign to get the vote out that Turner's campaign might not be able to reach. So I don't think that there's a guarantee that the people who would vote for Sharon Graham will then just vote for Turner. I think that that's the dilemma. So Sharon Graham's really the only one on the left who can pick up the, um, the you know refocus unite on the workplace like does that make sense yeah no i get it um i mean the 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 other side of that though is if if the vote is split and coin does win then like all of it's out the window in terms of like organizing like the, the kind of organizing strategies that graham's talking about and so on i mean my understanding is is that he's not like a dave prentice coin is much more vicious than that and he's much more connected to the more kind of anti-left elements around the labor party and stuff like that and the unite is quite likely to be purged in the event that coin wins the other problem if coin wins is that um you know what kind of what kind of relationship does that mean that unite have with the the Labour Party although Sharon's talking about like refocusing on the workplace in like sort of similar style but Coyne is um you know looking into like really quite drastic moves against the left I would I would argue um, and I think that that has knock-on implications for the Labour Party and how it's funded. Hmm, hmm. Well, if if the left does lose it, it would be a it would be massive blow. I mean, you're right. It's. Um, I mean, it's... I think the danger is that like Turner versus Coin is very tightly run. It would be a very tight contest. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think uh, Graham versus Coin, I think that I think Shannon Graham would win. Even if Turner stayed in, presumably he no, won't. No, I think that's the problem. Like. If Shannon Graham stays in, then it's, I mean, she would have to like, to beat those two, I think it would have to be massive because I think Turner's vote would transfer to Shannon Graham. Do you know what I mean? Because the left would just be like anyone but coin. Yeah. Yes, I, I see what you mean. It is a problem then for Graham that Beck is back Turner. Yeah, and I know from speaking to some activists in Unite, they were quite surprised at that because they thought if Howard Beckett withdrew, he would support Sharon Graham um, but because that's the reality on the ground is that people who were in Beckett's camp I think their second preference a lot of the time was for Sharon Graham right so just because Beckett's backed Turner doesn't necessarily mean that his vote will all go to Turner yeah. Course, course. God, I hope that our listeners are still awake. <laughs> yeah. Did you keep up with all that? It was a wee bit like discussing, you know, like a novel that other people haven't read. Like but then what happens? So Beckett back at one point there I said Beckett back backing Turner will be bad news for Graham, you know, in the fight against coin. It's like, who the fuck are these people? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like trying to like describe a tv program to yeah. someone who hasn't seen it yet and you can sort of see their eyes glazing over at the prospect but the thing is like whether we like it or not it is important and it does have a knock-on impact on the future of the labor party which everyone should be interested in mm -hmm. even if it's just from a sort of 
popcorn point of view. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm relegated. Um, I couldn't I couldn't even tell you what's going on inside my own union, the NUJ. Don't think I could name the general secretary. That's how, that's how good a, a, tra- a trade unionist I am. Um, but yeah, so when when do we find out about that? Let's 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 know this time. Let's not be another battle in battle in Spain. I don't know, a couple of weeks. The twenty sixth of August. All right, so we've still got quite a long campaign. But as I understand it, I mean... I mean, Steve Turner got the most branch nominations by, yeah. like, a mile. Like, Coin only just... Like, Coin got, like, 196 branch nominations and Steve Turner got over 500. Yeah, but as I understand it, Coin got a similar number of nominations and almost won the last, yeah. like, elections. Yes. Yeah, it was very, very, very close. Well, how, how many people voted in the last election, roughly? Oh, because... fuck, now you're asking. Uh, I have no idea. And um, also, like, union ballot turnouts are historically low. Yes. Uh, because, I mean, this is the madness of it all. You have to do it by, like, postal ballot. Like, you can't yeah. do an, an electronic vote. Like, what the fuck is this? Dark ages. Yeah. Because like, you, you might have... It's a way to, like, strangle the unions and their engagement with members. Unite has like 1.2 members, so you know it's one of those like how big is 1. it? 1.2 million, not 1.2 members. <laughs> 1.2 million. <laughs> <laughs> it has, um, yeah, it's got one member and a and a short fella, um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, it has 1.2 million members, but you know, does it really? Uh, is always the question with uh, left-wing organisations. Are you wondering if some of them are like? Maybe point two of them are dead. Deceased. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was a Galloway voice you just did there. They are deceased. <laughs> uh, don't talk to me about the United election. They are deceased. Um, yeah. So, uh, and a lot of them won't be members anymore, and, and so on. But uh, anyway, you know, if you're still with the podcast at this point, I mean, I would have fucking switched off. <laughs> I would have switched this off. Uh, absolute shite um, maybe we should put a disclaimer that it will get better so we just make this last section much more interesting yeah we're now going to talk about some culture war stuff yeah. so, but unions right fuck that we, now we're going to talk about the culture war yeah place the unions to one side wake <laughs> yourself up slap that. about the face um, and you know get ready for some culture war Specifically, we're going to talk about the what I thought was incredible, the Chimanda Ngozi Adichie essay mm. that she has published this week called It Is Obscene, A True Reflection in Three Parts. I mean, I love this. I actually, I saw on Twitter and someone had like screenshotted a paragraph from it and then the link and I just kind of like skimmed past it and then I noticed there was like loads of people talking about it and I got sucked into the the, the Twitter bit of it and um, but reading it I was just I thought it was fantastic a really insightful piece into the culture war and where we are in the culture war as well yeah so she's like she's a writer and, and, it, and it reflects on her experiences of one uh, of running like a, a writing workshop. Is it in Nigeria? And the the students that she sort of made relationships with. And basically, um, you know, she, she takes one kind of promising, bright young thing on board um, and sort of, you know, takes her into her home and becomes friends with her and so on and, and encourages her in her career. And uh, I love the bit where she says that she helped her promote a book, like a novel or something. Mm -hmm. And she said that she really enjoyed the writing in it, but secretly felt that um, it was like vacuous, like it was pretty, but there was no substance to it. There was no real emotion. There was kind of no real intent. And she kept that quiet and helped to promote the book on the basis of uh, of its writing. She, um, I think she, she, she made a distinction between uh, women and trans women 
uh, and she was denounced by this uh, by this by her former student. And then she kind of recounts the story of this person's strange behaviour over the years of um, trying to use her relationship with this famous writer, alternately to kind of represent herself in, in a good light, or to denounce denounce her for kind of cred. Clout. You know, this is for clout. Yeah, clout. This has become a thing. This is like it's it's. We've moved from a culture where people simply show deference to the rich and powerful to one where you can you can ac accumulate uh, clout of your own through denunciation because denunciation of celebrities has become an, an important kind of cultural thing. Yeah, but uh, I think also the reason for this, I think it's important to say that the reason for this denunciation is that the the woman who's doing it like is trapped in the in the culture war as well hmm. and if she thinks like everyone's calling my mentor a transphobe and i'm associated with her i have to denounce hmm. otherwise the mob will come for me next like mm -hmm. it's that type of mentality and i find it fascinating that it's happening at this level like a world-renowned recognized writer um is now experiencing and talking about these things because these have been going on like in politics and particularly like on the left for fucking years. Mm. And if you um, were associated with someone who had um, the quote unquote wrong opinion, then you would be like, you would be canceled. Um, or you put someone on a platform for a debate that didn't, you know, didn't subscribe to um, the same politics as you, but you wanted a broad range. If you platform someone who, you know, didn't share certain beliefs, then you would be cancelled and people would boycott. Like, I mean, think of the reaction um, from some quarters when, you know, we invited um, Kenny McCaskill onto the election show, for example, mm -hmm. um, is that people you know want to cancel by association and actually i think that's so so dangerous for like political life um that you know there's certain people who it's not acceptable for um us on the left to talk to like i will literally talk to anyone like i don't think that no platforming work that like, works as a tactic anymore um mm. since the advent of youtube <laughs> like yeah the far right have hundreds of thousands if not millions of followers on youtube so no platform is gestural and it is deferring to this kind of like cancel culture that that we all kind of know exists um I, I mean we i mean i'll have people tell me off for saying that the left has a culture of being censorious and uh and the thing is it's as you say the object of the censorship is not the dodgy politician or the far-right activists, they are not the object of the deplatforming. The object of deplatforming is left-wing people who would consider debating someone on the well, right. That's yeah. the person who's the target. Well, I mean, remember, here's a great example of this. Do you remember when um, Eddie Dempsey from the RMT yeah. like, was speaking at a rally and... Um, Ash Sarkar and Owen Jones pulled out because he was on the platform. It's it's absolutely Brexit. Like, but the reason they pulled out, like, I just don't buy that it's principled. I but I think it's because like they were getting kickback from people. And I cool. don't I just don't think I think you should either like face it down. And this is this is what the um the essay is is kind of trying to do there's a really good bit at the start where um in this she says in this age of social media where a story travels the world in minutes silence sometimes mean that other people can hijack your story and soon their false version becomes the defining story about you see this is the thing is like about taking the high ground and just ignoring it um is that people will then like tar you by association do you know what i mean of course I know, of course I know, because you and I, even me, even someone who doesn't really have like a like a, a reputation or a status to protect, really, like 
this is the thing. The secret life of this stuff is worse than the public stuff, right? So that embarrassing situation where you have, um, you know, a, a media, a left-wing media commentator pulling out of a joint rally with a, um, a left-wing young trade unionist because he supports Brexit, right? is embarrassing enough, right? The public uh, image of it. But you and I and many, many, many left-wing activists have had phone calls where or people sending you messages saying, I think it's important that you distance yourself from this person. Yeah. Right? And it yeah. might even, by the way, be someone who you're not friends with, yeah. you don't work with, but people will say to you, you need to be seen yeah. to denounce this person, right? Yeah. It could be someone you have no contact with, right? And uh, like, I just routinely refuse. Yes. Like, I'm not, I'm not, not becoming part of this, this thing, right? It's just bloody tedious, apart from anything else. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's totally, it's totally absurd, and it is a real phenomenon. And the same people who will say that it's not a real phenomenon will try and cancel someone the very next day <laughs> like it's, it's become that it's sort of knee-jerk and unconscious that uh someone will you know say that the whole thing is phony and it's just been cooked up by the tabloid newspapers and then the very next day they'll say you should not be talking to this person you shouldn't have retweeted from this or that publication etc 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 um but it was just interesting to see someone discussing the, the secret life yeah, the secret life of 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 this, the uh, you know, and 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 the, and the kind of shallow motivations of people in in engaging in that kind of public behaviour. If I had a friend, and one of the things she says is because she was publicly denounced by a student for uh, after after those comments, and she said she should have contacted me. Right. If you have a genuine disagreement, if I had a friend who had a genuine moral disagreement with something that they'd said or something like that, I'd like to think I'd have the courage to address them privately on it. Right. Uh, it's much harder to do that, by the way, to have, a, have an earnest discussion where you think you, a friend has gone wrong on something. It's quite emotionally difficult to have that conversation. It's much, much easier to denounce. Yeah. and more cowardly and cheaper and just and ineffective apart from anything else right um i cannot imagine if i had a, if i had a friend someone who you know had given me time and helped me with stuff um that i would then denounce them because i thought it was it would it was important to dissociate myself from something yeah. that they'd done it's absurd that's the thing it's like all about like saving her own skin is what she's done um uh, but and and, and the, I was going to say there. The, the kind of third act. So she is a kind of like well, a true story. Before in we go on to the third act, my favorite paragraph in this whole thing that I just is like the most perfect articulation of how I feel about this. It says, um, "In a deluded way, you will convince yourself that your hypocritical, self-regarding, compassion-free behavior is in fact principled feminism." Like I love that. Like, because I do think that, like, you know, um, certain things, you know, become weaponized. Like, I tweeted, when I tweeted during the, um, the parliamentary inquiry into the handling of the Alex Salmond case, um, that Sturgeon, you know, wasn't a, a victim, you know, stopped treating, like, the most, like, actually the most powerful person in the country, arguably, um, as some kind of like you know victim and it's terrible for her and how hard this must be for her and um, you know people like women just like rounded on me and um, you know and like we're very personal um, and I think it is hypocritical self-regarding and compassion free like I have no fucking time for that like you like I just I hate this idea of like you know because you're a woman Whenever you're up against a man, there must like be um, sexism, or you must be weak, or you must be a victim, or you know you must be at risk. Like I hate this constant denial of agency in modern feminism, and I hate the way that it's wielded against you know people who are, are pointing out the problems with it. Mm -hmm. So it then goes on to say. Uh, it isn't you will wrap your mediocre malice in the false gauziness of ideological purity but it's still malice 
you tell yourself that being able to parrot the latest American feminist orthodoxy justifies your hacking at the spirit of a person who had shown you only kindness. And then this last line, which is like, I mean, amazing. It says, um, you can call your opportunism by any name, but it doesn't make it any less of the ugly opportunism it is. Mwah! Magnificent. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's what this is. It's opportunism. It's people like, you know, trading in things like reputation, using, um, you know, certain types of politics to... Uh, virtue signal and i am going to use that phrase yeah it's a shame that some right winger probably coined that first because it unfortunately does quite accurately sum up the uh the the situation um what what i found interesting about it as well was like um and it really set me to thinking like she one of the one point she says you know there's a there's a deeply kind of competitive spirit uh, imbued in all this this is um you know it's a very kind of self-serving uh there's almost like the like the people who are involved in this behavior they're almost self-consciously involved in a kind of rat race do you know what i mean they're almost self-consciously in sort of there's a huge amount of one-upmanship survival um and it just it just occurred to me that there must be psychological and emotional effects for and she makes it generational as well like she says like this is a phenomenon among younger people more than anything else it did kind of make me think like there are psychological consequences to growing up in a in a society where most of the institutional solidarity has been destroyed yeah the market is the only arbiter of morality um and there is no question whatsoever that middle class people use allegations including guilt by association, to remove people from jobs, to, you know, we've discussed this before, to, to, to grow a social media following, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's no question Absolutely. of the directly material competitive instinct in play here. And the case of this young woman, she actually had cultural products to sell and she was worried that they would be damaged by her association yeah. Yeah. to a famous sure. author. I mean, middle-class people produce little else. They produce little else. But um, I was reading that. Uh, I was reading about this recently in um, the end of the end of history, which we'll be bringing you a, a special podcast on at some point. Um, they they make this point about well, drawing on Thomas Piketty uh, about what he calls the Brahmin left. That there's a section of the population now whose sole function is like the reproduction of official morality in society. Um, and that much of the kind of university-educated middle-class left is like is like a priest class. Like its main product is that it has morally superior uh, attitudes that it seeks to uh, dispense across society. And if you think about huge layers of that, like the media, so preachy, academia, NGOs, there is a large percentage now of the population. Right. I mean, a minority, but a chunk, there is a chunk of the population. It could be 10 or 15% of the population whose essential social function is to preach moral virtues to society. And as we know from the history of priest classes, this is a fundamentally hypocritical social function. Right? I mean, the problem with it is that it's not really, it's not virtue. It's not a moral code it's the appearance of a moral code. So, mm. do you know what I mean? It's not actually like a, it's not an evangelical thing. Um, it's just the appearance, it's just, it's just a shell because the actual, you know, moral of, you know, how we treat people with compassion and loyalty and those sorts of things that really matter, um, you know, is thrown out the window when it comes to the opportunity to cancel someone um, for something that they've said, um, you know, like in this situation. Um, and the essay makes the point, which I think is key, uh, that the assumption of good faith is dead. Like, and that's part, of the, that's part of the problem. Like there's sometimes when I've tweeted things where I'm being like, people could really like misread this and accuse me of, you know, this, that and the other. And um, because people do deliberately misread things in order to further their own 
you know agenda like that that is a fact like people will accuse others of sexism for example um, in order to put forward you know a, a particular point of view or further their own politics I've seen it happen yeah and the other thing that, that the book the point the book makes is like this is a huge boon to the right because if you look at the cultural message that the right now projects, whether it's Silvio Berlusconi, who was kind of the architect, or Trump, or Boris Johnson, right? There's something interesting about all these characters, which is they are extremely relaxed about you finding out how immoral they are, right? Completely. And the reason that people like that, and the reason that people vote for it, right? And they vote for it. Like, people voted for Silvio Berlusconi, Trump got the highest oh, yeah. vote for a Republican ever. Um, Boris Johnson is striding mm. particularly English politics like a colossus, right? The reason that people vote for it is because their cultural message is I give you license not to be anxious about your moral status all the time, right? Yeah. What they're saying to people is ignore the Brahmins. I give you license to ignore the Brahmins, and I'm the most powerful person in the country. Silvio Berlusconi did this perfectly. The, the bunga bunga parties really helped him because, because most people can look back at their lives and think things like, I've been engaged in like sexual indiscretions. A lot of people in society know that they've cheated on their partner. A lot of people in, in society know that they, are, that they view porn on the internet a lot of people in society know how dirty their own minds are, right? The fact that you, the man in charge of the country, and people say, well, it's a masculine thing. It's partly that. It's more the fact that most people know that they have a, a, a capacity for what might be considered sexual immorality. And the most powerful man in the country is openly engaging in it. Yeah. And that gives you license. Not to go out and carry on like that necessarily, but at least to forgive yourself. At least to remind yourself that, these abstract moral principles um, are just that, that they, that they don't sum up who you are, that you can be someone who makes indiscretions and still be a fundamentally good person, or at least not a fundamentally bad person. Yeah. That's such a powerful tool yeah. for the right to that's, have. Because that's the reality, is that you know people are incredibly flawed and they make mistakes and they say the wrong thing, um, but they can still be fundamentally good people. I mean, this is the problem when everything is seen through black and white and when everything is seen as like you're either on this side or you're on that side is that there is no room for gray and this is like my politics at the moment is like I always just like try and see like where the gray is like where are the contradictions and um, you know where are the you know the outliers in this situation and that's, yeah, that's the problem with the culture war is that there is no nuance. Yeah, and there's no, there's no room for humanity. There's no, and no. I mean that in, a, in an explicit sense and that there's no room for who humans really are, right? There's only room for a fantastical projection of the perfect moral being. There's no room for the actual human material of society. I mean, this author was denounced because of the views that she espoused on what to most people is one particularly heated but quite marginal debate. They wouldn't have known the difference between using the word uh, woman and trans woman, right? They wouldn't have understood the distinction. It's so technical. She had to be denounced for saying that. But again, that they're being, the like people, if they pay any attention, they're watching someone be denounced for a form of words, the distinction of which they don't understand when they themselves know that they've been bigoted, they themselves know that they once got drunk and punched their dad, they themselves know that, like I said, you know, they've broken the law here or there, they themselves know that they are <laughs> capable of much worse and more destructive things than a form of words. And what message does that send to them? What message does it send to the majority of people in society who know how morally frail they are? And this isn't, uh, by the way, a discussion about giving people license to behave in, I don't know, destructive or reactionary ways or whatever. People are going to do that anyway. This is a conversation like, this is about compassion and about realism, about the human condition. 
And if you're not even willing to do that, then who are you talking to? You're not talking to society at that point. You're not even attempting to talk to the real societies that actually exists. You're just involved in a competition between other layers of your thin social element whose fundamental product is morality. Yeah. I mean, the thing that she said was um, that trans women um, are trans women. Um, and, you know, I think that what what she's then clarified is that, of course, they are women, but in talking, she said, of course, they're women, but in talking about feminism and gender, it's important for us to acknowledge the differences in experiences of gender. Um, yeah, but the, the, but the point is, like, whatever the debate might be, but yeah, that, that's the point. It doesn't really matter, like so granular the 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 nuance of it. it so you've got so you've got people are like jostling to like you know throw the first punch. Like everyone's yeah. like you know. So on the left, on the on the left, you have a novelist getting getting trashed for that, right, for a granular disagreement. And on the right, you've got Balasconi swaggering around being like, Haha, I've fucked loads of teenagers. It's great. Go out and have fun, right? <laughs> Who do people think ultimately is gonna like is, is gonna be more likable in the public? It's obvious. And we have we have a we have the proven record. The last 20 or 30 years of Western politics has been utterly dominated by the right. And that has structural reasons and all sorts. It also has cultural reasons. Well, I mean, obviously, Scottish politics hasn't been free of sexual scandal, especially the left. Indeed, indeed. Um, but but this is the point, right? So in the in the book, they make this point. They say because the right is openly amoral, right? Because the right says things like, "Oh, the world's just a competition," right? This is the other thing. This is this is why you know who you always get people saying, um, "Oh." right-wing populists talk about how the left are the elites but the real elites are the multi-millionaires but the multi-millionaires never pretended to be anything else right the multi-millionaires go around saying to people i care about me and i care about success for me you can't you can't call someone like that hypocrite right they're telling you the truth whereas the left makes pompous moral claims about itself and then can't live up to them because no one can live up no to one them. can live up to them no totally i agree I mean, I mean, Tommy Sheridan, this is the thing, right? He, like, we've made like a massive rod for our own back. Like, of course, of course, right. What were you going to say about Sheridan? So he, he got caught doing what um, Balasconi gets caught doing. Yeah, right? the problem is, is that he had presented himself to the electorate as this like as family man, like, uh, yeah. a virtuous family man, non-drinking and all that. I remember when he exactly so that so the charge of one is one of hypocrisy you can't trust him right he preaches one thing and then he he behaves in a separate way Balasconi has a unified personality his public persona is his private persona right yeah. his private yeah. debauchery is his public appeal right um now this is the thing about the, all this moralizing right every single moralizer is a liar right every single one if you understand uh, human nature you know that everyone's got skeletons in the closet you know if you go around howling about in there yeah. yeah 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 the fucking doors <laughs> what? They've, they've got a spin class going on in there Do you know what i mean it's, <laughs> that cl closet is like a tardis right there's a fucking skeleton <laughs> army in there um so the the, the moralizers are just as immoral as the people you know, who are like, you know, maybe not some of the worst sociopaths, right? But um, the people who are quite open about their body kind of awful behavior and, and all the shagging and the coking and all the rest of it, right? They are the same. So all it means is you're going to have a bunch of people who constantly get found out and they do, right? And especially in a, in a heightened culture of denunciation. Yeah. But what but that whole that whole thing has really tarnished the left. I'm thinking particularly about an experience that I had when I was running for a candidate as the rise candidate. Um, and I had obviously been talking about um like railing against inherited wealth. Mm. Um and uh I was asked in an interview, like how can you talk about um housing, the housing crisis when you know, you have a you have a flat in the West End. Da, da, da. Do you know what I mean going for this angle? 
which I think is ridiculous that people who have a mortgage can't talk about like the housing crisis. Mm. It's stupid. It's a classic right wing tool. And then the next, um, you know, thing I was just like, well, basically what happened was that when my grand passed away, and um, she left me, you know, some money. I mean, she left me about six thousand pounds, and her whole like thing for me was that she wanted me to be able to like live independently and so I just saved some of that money and then you know put together a deposit and got a flat and then this other journalist picked this up and wrote a whole column about how much of a hypocrite I was and how disgraceful it was that I was daring to you know say anything about inherited wealth when you know my gran had left me money and I actually, I, like, I went back to the paper to ask um, for a right of reply because I was like, this is just, this is absurd. This is actually, and also, let's be honest, quite cruel um, because I had, I was very close to my grandmother um, and the way that this had been written was just, it was as if, my granny who was like a cleaner in lawyers offices up until she was in her 70s was some kind of like magnate yeah yeah like tycoon like my gran in the fucking high-rise flats in Coat Bridge is like somehow a multi-millionaire like it's just not how it works and so there is a degree to which I'm just like (sighs) it was very unfair and I was denied the the right of response so the journalist messaged me um, and I was like, I was really hurt by what you what you did and what you said. And she said, well, you know, if you're a person who's concerned about poverty, you should have taken that money your grand left you and donated it to a charity. <laughs> no, but isn't that classic, though? It's like the other thing is um, people now mistake all politics for identity that, politics. Exactly. Morality. And that's yeah. what I mean by this, like, rods for her own back. So, like, she gets to use the oldest and stupidest anti-socialist argument known to humanity, that I'm a hypocrite um, because I condemn inherited wealth, wealth, quote, from, an actual line in her thing was benefiting from inherited wealth and privilege by using, like, this small amount of money that my gran left. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not a fucking wealthy dowager princess and, you know, turned up with a lot of load of cash. But that's the product of but two. Even if I, but even if I did, it shouldn't be a fucking problem. Like, that's the point. Like, Tony yeah. Benn, for example, like, he was the biggest scourge of inherited wealth and privilege in recent British history. It's only, like, the Daily Mail that runs lines like, Tony Benn's a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. In fact, they probably wouldn't anymore because because uh, he became so popular towards the end of his life that he had to be revered on all sides of politics. But that's a product of two things. One, the uh, the absolute sort of negative brain trust that is the Scottish media, and because by the way, you'll find that basically all like like ninety percent of journalists would agree with that, right? That the problem with left wing politics is that uh, well, you don't have a right to talk about it unless you live in sackcloth and ashes, unless you're living in rags. Um, you don't get to talk about uh, about you know poverty, inequality, or whatever. But it is also, as you say, it's the product of the left's um, hand, you know, trading in politics for morality. Yeah, you you leave your like as as a general creed, we are wide open to accusations of hypocrisy, because we've stopped saying to people that look, the reason why I agree with socialism is because I want to live in a different type of social order where there is not obscene and irrational um, imbalances in wealth and power, and do you know what I mean? Like it's it's yeah. it, I'm. I'm it is like uh, it's an argument based on a critique of existing society that is fundamentally rational in its character, or attempting to be rational, and uh, an alternative which is both socially just and again rational and sustainable, and so on. Now, left-wing people don't talk about politics in that kind of way. Very often, they'll just sort of say things like they'll need to relate it to like I've been done a moral wrong, um, you know, and and you know. XYZ is oppressed and it's disgusting that they're oppressed and that needs to stop. There's not, it, it's kind of lost uh, um, an objectivity. Yeah, but part of this is also because, um, you know, the pundits who write these type of articles um, or say these sorts of things, they're the ones complaining that politics is uninteresting and lacking in ideas. 
but they're just fucking intellectually lazy like they've, they've also been part of this like climate of suspicion and paranoia and um, where you know you can't say that you're against inherited wealth for fear of or whatever it is um because you might then be exposed in your private life and that's like it, it just feeds into that um culture of conformity do you mm. know what i mean like you know in my situation like this journalist was saying that as a someone needs to like who's a someone who's a socialist needs to give up all their wealth and possessions and live you know a life of poverty like that's what you need to do to be a socialist yeah um, but that's like that reminds me of being at parties with anarchists who were like all stoned and being like well how can you oppose private property when you've got a telly <laughs> like, my politics isn't about taking people's fucking tellies and nationalizing them yeah, it's not about like stopping grannies giving their grandchildren like small bequests uh, uh, socialism for me is about like you know addressing the issue that exists of millionaires leaving their children more fucking money than someone can spend in a lifetime like mm. that's the reality of inherited wealth it's, it's painful like, isn't it when like um you can you can draw a thread of utter stupidity all the way from some dreadlocked doped up anarchist right in a, in a dingy flat through to the leading like journalists in the country fundamentally sharing completely bovine attitudes about the world failing to escape a sort of baseline morality uh it's uh it's pretty sad i mean it's just like it's just part of that you know i mean i guess it, it calling the left hypocrites uh, gets clicks but the left has created that culture especially mm. around moral issues um that's my take in conclusion we need a left wing uh selvio balasconi I tell you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be against that. Like, you know, I like a sort of like sexy male leader. <laughs> um, so well, yeah. Uh, May edit that bit. Out. We, yeah, we are, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be advertising that role in, in coming weeks. Apply for it. I mean, are our listeners sexy? I have no idea. I hope they are. Yeah, probably more just like us, though. Um, I uh, I like to think they are as well. Let's maintain the illusion. Um, listeners, tweet us and tell us if you're sexy or not. Is that us? <laughs> Fuck yeah! <laughs> We've been talking for like an hour and a half. Jesus. Maybe. <laughs>